Greetings and welcome to the podcast, Birkegaard. The writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I am Birkegaard, of course. Good to be with you once again this week. Have my coffee ready to go. Gotta take a sip. Uh, so delicious. Um, anyway, so it's uh, it's August sixteenth uh, here. Uh, might be some other date there when you listen to this, but it's interesting in Pennsylvania right now. It's still real hot, super humid, but there's this uh, it's there's some uh, premonition in the, in the wind right now that it's got a cool element to it. I noticed it yesterday when I was out playing some disc golf at a local course. I could only play about ten holes because working on some aspects of my game. So I had to play a certain part of the course that isn't too woodsy. It's hard to play in the woods right now anyway because it's, like, uh, it's, so, it's so overgrown. A lot of, uh, a lot of dangers to uh, lose disc and get ticks and stuff like that. It's fun to play in the woods, but it's better to play perhaps in the fall or in the winter or in the spring when it doesn't get too overgrown. But I had to play the first, um, it was like the first five holes of this course. And I played it like uh, two times and I was going to try to do a third time. So like a total of 15, I just couldn't do it. Um, and it was about maybe about 11 o'clock in the morning. So it wasn't like in the mid afternoon when it's super, super hot. But I noticed this yesterday, the, the breeze, uh, the breeze has a cool element into it. So it's, it's like, uh, like fall is whispering and it happened the other day too. And I was out and about and I put it up on Facebook that, that fall is in the wind and I look forward to fall. It's my favorite season. I was born in October. Um, but I always liked Halloween, stuff like that, going and hanging out with friends and going around to, uh, the neighbors begging for candy and, uh, dressing up and, uh, loved, uh, loved the burning leaves. Uh, it smelled them in the atmosphere and, uh, loved the changing of trees. Uh, so fall, fall is just my, my season, but I, I've learned to appreciate summer more than I used to. I've taken some, some steps to not be as vulnerable to the heat. I, uh, don't like the heat. I don't do well in it, uh, but I've been taking some uh, electrolytes, uh, which is helping to uh, restore my body. Uh, it's different types of salts, things like calcium, magnesium, potassium, and uh, I've been really hydrating and trying to avoid the most uh, stern times of the day and uh, just drinking a lot of water and drinking less coffee and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, today we're going to get into, continue to get into this, uh, this uh, upbuilding discourse on... Uh, with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's important to concentrate on all three parts of that statement. And last week, Soren emphasized that Job just didn't say it. He did it. Uh, the words were merely uh, an explanation for his actions because he fell down and worshipped God after all the things he had been through. As I was reading through uh, Job, I remembered, and I already knew this, but it was just kind of a remembrance, that God speaks a lot in the book of Job, kind of unusually so. There's different parts of the Bible where God the Father does speak, but usually it's pretty brief. I would suppose like when the, um, when the people of Israel were leaving uh, Egypt uh, under the uh, Red Sea rescue, when they came into the land of Canaan, there was uh, that... I think it's like Deuteronomy 28 where God lays out what will happen if they're obedient versus disobedient. It's kind of the blessings and cursings type of thing. It's a long, it's a long passage. I assume that was God the Father. Uh, I think it is, of course. 
the Jews really had no idea of the Trinity. We talked about last week that in the Jewish uh, Old Testament, uh, eternity is hinted at. It's never super, super clear. There's different verses like in Daniel and Isaiah, which talks about uh, people living again and overcoming the trials of the world. Uh, but then there's verses like in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and other places where it doesn't seem super clear that uh, the writer had in mind eternity because they're, uh, they're kind of just bewailing what life is right here on this planet and not looking to a better day. They're wondering and asking God what's going on. So in Job, you know, he says, my Redeemer lives. And by implication, if my Redeemer lives, then we live in him because uh, that's where our hope is. Um, my Redeemer lives. Uh, but there's also elements where Job has to be confronted by God. It says that, God, uh, that Job never directly cursed God, even in the midst of his trials, losing his children, losing all of his fortune, uh, being uh, afflicted with uh, boils and all kinds of physical uh, ailments. Um, there's a time where God pushes back and pushes back very severely. He reminds Job that Job is just a man and he is God. And it's all about God the creator, like where were you when I created the world? Did you put these constellations in order, Orion and Pleiades and all that? So I just uh, came across a couple uh, couple of writings from St. Augustine that I want to start off with. But what is my God? I asked this question to the earth. It answered, I am not God. Everything on earth uh, said the same. I asked the sea, the abysses of the deep, and the life forms that creep in them. And they replied, we are not your God. Seek what is above us. I spoke to the blowing winds, uh, to mention the winds here, but the entire atmosphere and all that lives, and it replied, I am not God. Then I asked the sky, sun, moon, stars, but they told me, we are not the God you seek. I spoke to everything around me, all that my senses revealed to me, and I said, seeing that you are not my God, tell me about him. Tell me something about, of my God. In a loud, clear voice, they replied, God is the one who made us. I put these questions simply uh, by looking on these things, and their beauty was the only answer they gave. So I think it's uh, really great and really cool. I don't know where in Augustine uh, he wrote this. Could be in his... Um, could be in his, uh, his major work... Uh, could be in his biography, I don't know. We'd have to look at it more. Um, anyway, that was one thing. Here's a here's another here's another um, writing from Augustine, which I thought was really neat. It gets into the paradox. Uh, Soren's very very big on paradox, uh, as you know. If you're familiar with uh, Soren, he says it's not a contradiction; it's just a paradox. Uh, there's many things that are paradoxical. Um, love the verse. Uh, this uh, thing that he wrote, he says that uh, do or not do, you'll regret both. And that's a paradox, but it's the truth. No matter what choices you, you make in life, there will always be, there will always be an upside and always be a downside. If you get married, there's a lot of upside with that. It uh, depends, obviously, on who you marry and who you are. But there's also a downside. You lose your ability to do what you want. You lose your, to some degree, uh, you lose your ability to uh, set your own agenda. You have to learn to compromise. You have to learn to see things through another person's eyes. And if you haven't been married yet, and you plan to be, 
no one can really prepare you for it, but just realize it'll probably be more difficult than you realize, but probably more blessed if it works out. And you'll learn more about yourself by being married and having children than almost any other experience that you could have in life, I suppose. Uh, but everything has an upside, everything has a downside. This is a really simple explanation, but uh, I do a lot of athletic stuff outside, you know, climbing, mountain biking, playing disc golf. And one of the frustrating things is if you're out for a run or hiking or on your on your bike is to have your shoelaces come untied. It's, it's dangerous, too, if you're riding your bike because you can caught, get caught up in the derailleur and into the chain, and, you know, you can wipe out and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you put your you put your uh, shoes in a double knot. So when you tie your shoes, you don't just put a single uh, knot in it. You put a double knot and you tie it twice. And it makes it pretty uh, pretty secure against coming unraveled at bad times when you're riding your bike across a difficult terrain or hiking up a hill where you really don't want to stop. It's just a pain in the neck. When it comes to take the shoes off, it's more difficult to take the shoes off because they're in a double knot. So this is the idea that everything has an upside, everything has a downside. Um, taking your shoes off is a lot easier if it only has a simple one one knot on it. If it has two knots, you have to be a lot more careful. You have to put. I have to put my glasses on. I have to look at it. I have because you know with a normal knot, when you tie your shoes, you can just pull it and it comes out. Uh, with a double knot, you can't do that, and that's why it's so stable. You have to like un untie the knot in a very specific way you have to get into the actual into the actual shoelace and pull it apart you can't just pull the end parts out as you can kind of imagine that so the really simple example how the things have upsides and downsides so no matter what you're dealing with in life there are now the things are pretty much completely good like breathing oxygen oxygen is a good thing but it has to be in proportion right um but there are things that are completely bad poison uh, there are things that are completely good. Water is, is very good, but, you know, water can be very dangerous. You drink too much water, you throw off your electrolytes, it's very dangerous. If you're over overheated, you have to be careful. You have to consume the right amount of water along with all the electrolytes that help your body function properly electrically. So everything has a balance, you know, but there are things that are better than worse. Drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels is not a good thing. Uh, eating a bowl of broccoli generally is. Uh, so there are things that are more clearly good or not so good. Uh, but then there are things very much in the middle where, you know, if you do something, it has an advantage. If you do, if you do it, it's going to have a disadvantage. And then you have to weigh these things, kind of like in a scale. And then if you put other variables in it, um, then you have to consider not just these, uh, like a seesaw, it's like a multiplex. You have to think about this element and 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 this element. And you have to think about the pros and cons and do all this kind of uh, multi-seesawing, uh, kind of three dimensions or four dimensions. So it's, it's difficult. And the way I handle that is I, um, I uh, do things, uh, I write things down. If I get overwhelmed, I just make a list. I read that in a book one time. If you ever get over overwhelmed, a short list is better than a long memory. So this is a thing about paradox with St. Augustine. Man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the uh, bread might hunger. The bread of life might hunger. That's what he's referring to. The fountain thirst. Uh, Jesus is... And John calls himself the uh, fountain of living water. The light sleep, 
Uh, light was a component of, of the creation. It was created before the sun. Light was created as a physical entity before the sun was actually created. If you read in Genesis, whether you take that um, literally or metaphorically, it's interesting that light was created as a, as a physical entity before the sun was. The light sleeps. So light, it tends to be eternal. It's, a, it's an aspect of this um, creation, whether it's the sun or the stars or whatever. It's on all the time. So the light did sleep. The way be tired on his journey. Uh, so Jesus was clearly tired at times. The way be tired on his journey. That the truth might be accused of false witness. Now this was the charge that Jesus was crucified for. Uh, they had to bring witnesses against him. And they, well, now he was crucified for blaspheming, calling himself God. Uh, but he was accused of false witness because that would be being a false witness. If you said you were God or the, the son of God the Father, uniquely so, not just one of many, but the only son of God, then that would be false witness of the highest order, but ultimately it was blasphemous in the eyes of Jews. But they had to bring false witnesses against Jesus in his trial. Uh, and Jesus was silent for most of it. But the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. So uh, Augustine is referring to the classic Greek model of some teachers whipping their, their students for being truculent or disobedient. So the teacher being uh, beaten with whips. I'm reading uh, Soren's um, uh, biography of Soren, Soren Kierkegaard, a biography uh, written in Danish by Joachim Garf. Now this is the definitive uh, biography of, uh, of, uh, of Soren translated from the Danish by Bruce Kermsey. Kermsey. And with the uh, with all the stuff in the book, the intros and the and the indexes and the appendixes and the end notes, it's eight hundred and sixty seven pages, but in this uh, in this book, uh Joachim and uh, translated by Bruce and Kermsey was talking about uh, one of Soren's teachers when he was in school was a real uh was a real old school type of guy who whipped the children and beat the children with canes, had a way of slapping the kids, first with a backhand and then a forehand. And he wasn't universally beloved as a teacher. Apparently the teacher was a dude that had come from the Jutland, just like uh, Soren's father did, which is kind of a rural part of Denmark, had made himself a teacher just by force of will. One of the other students said it was no great intellect that made him a teacher. It was just a force of will. But... Um, yeah, he would. He, if the if the students were disobedient or um, didn't learn the lessons, he would smack them once with their with his with his backhand. So he started off with a backhand like tennis, and then would finish with a full full handed slap across their face as a return stroke. But it's interesting. Soren dedicated some of his later books to this teacher. So whatever this guy had and wasn't wasn't loved, uh, he wanted to be respected versus loved, and didn't inspire the students according to one other student wanted to make them fear him um yeah soren soren uh, dedicated some books to him towards the end which are interesting so i don't know what to make of that but it's good to read this biography i'm i'm learning uh, more about soren's uh, obviously his life and the experience that made him who he was he, he was kind of unusual from the start but then his life experiences certainly built upon that his relationship with his dad's very complicated Dad was a very dedicated person in many ways. Uh, wasn't formally educated, but very successful in commerce. And he wanted his son, according to um, 
the biographer to be the intellectual equivalent of how his dad was commercially. His dad became very uh, successful commercially by selling wool and other products. So the teacher might be beaten with whips. The teacher be beaten with whips. It wasn't might. He was, Jesus was beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. And there is an example and a kind of a parallel between Abraham and Isaac and Jesus. Uh, Isaac is to be put on wood and to be burnt. And uh, Isaac is carrying the wood that he is supposed to be sacrificed on. And uh, Jesus had to carry his cross. So I'm not the first one to point out that uh, that parallel, but that's true. The foundation would be suspended on wood. Now, Jesus was a carpenter in his traditional understanding, but carpenters did a lot more than just work with wood. Uh, they manufactured and built, uh, like they were masons. They were like a jack-of-all-trades, which would make sense that Jesus would be able to do pretty much everything required to build a home or to build uh, farm implements and things like that. The foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And this is from Augustine of Hippo, uh, Sermons uh, 191.1. So uh, some of those sermons, obviously, uh, at least 190, I would suppose, and then some afterwards were preserved. Uh, So we're very, uh, we're very... um, we're very blessed uh, that, uh, that Augustine's writings survive. And it was interesting. One time I got in a, a kind of a conflict with a guy online. It wasn't a direct friend of mine, but a friend of a friend. And my friend's fairly liberal, uh, a Christian, but really has some unusual interpretations of Scripture. And has a, has a lot of friends that are you know, very liberal and left-leaning. And this guy was a, a black man, very educated. They had his doctorate, was a teacher somewhere, like a professor. And the guy was basically saying conservatism is kind of equivalent to racism. That, you know, theological conservatism is pretty much de facto racism. And there is truth to that to a degree. Like in the South, the Presbyterians and a lot of the religious people justified slavery by biblical verses. But the same, the same Bible was also what freed, uh, freed the black man and uh, you know, exposed uh, the heresy of racism because we're one blood, and we're not different bloods, we're all human beings. Uh, there's no such thing as racist, per se. Uh, that was kind of a... Um, racist and racism are very equivalent in the sense that the arguments uh, regarding slavery were that blacks were inferior, that they were a lesser created being, more like the animals, didn't have, didn't have uh, the same intellectual gifts or the same... Uh, kind of spirituality that white people did. That's what Jefferson believed. He believed that blacks were kind of subhuman, and under that auspices, they justified slavery because you could treat them just like you would treat a, a horse or a donkey or an ox or whatever. You just make them work and you know, broke up the families and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but regardless, I got in the debate with this guy because I, I made a, I made the point when he said that conservatism, theological conservatism, should be chucked out and all the commentaries be get rid of. I said, you know, Saint Augustine was black. He he was from uh, he was from from Africa, and he, if you talk about theological conservatism, that is Saint Augustine. He is the basis, outside of like direct people that were in New Testament times, like uh, Peter and Paul and James and all these characters that were in the first century, Augustine is the definition of theological conservatism. Uh, it's not even, um, it's not even close. He's the most, uh, significant, most prodigious, uh, 
theologian in church history. Uh, so to say that all conservatives, all, all conservatives were racist and there's nothing good to be saved in all the commentaries, <laughs> I was like, uh, you know better. Don't say that. You're, you're pandering to your audience. You're trying to win points. And then I got chastised by my friend by pointing out that fact uh, that Augustine was African. So anyway, people don't like facts if it conflicts with their uh, ideology. But it's important that we stay open because we may be wrong about stuff. Uh, so anyway, that was just my uh, my uh, my point, and uh, didn't win me any friends, I guess. But I'll, I'll stand up for the truth. I don't care. I'll do my best. All right, so we're gonna get to Augustine here. So thank you for uh, sticking with me as I develop these ideas. We talked about last week only the person who's been tried who has uh, who has tested the saying, and being tested himself, only he rightly interprets the saying. Uh, so Soren's making the point that the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That you only truly understand that if you've been through the fires. Otherwise, it's uh, it's too abstract. It, it reminds me of like Stoicism, that uh, you know Job just has lost everything and he he uh, he falls down and worships. And there's a lot of complexity in this in this little saying. Just like when Abraham is taking Isaac to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed, there's a lot of agony. There's a lot of agony that's embedded in that three-day story. And I would say in this in this very verse, there's a lot of agony. Um, and the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So uh, Soren said, therefore, we quite properly call Job a teacher of humankind and not of individuals because he presents himself to everyone as his prototype, beckons to everyone with his glorious example, calls everyone in his beautiful saying. So Job is, is, a, is a figure of Jesus, sort of. Uh, think about all the suffering that Job went through, loss of... Um, Loss of kin, loss of family, uh, loss of children. His wife still survived. <clears throat> Somebody made a good point that Job's wife in the book of Job comes across kind of harshly, but she had just lost all of her children. So let's cut her a break. And the woman's dealing with a lot of loss. Um, but yeah, lost Job, lost all of his possessions, lost his health. And think about Jesus uh, coming down from heaven. He's giving up the prerogatives of Godhood losing his family, so to speak, in terms of his relationship with his father, gets uh, gets severed in terms of the cross and gets abandoned. And it's a bit of a paradox how, how God the Father and Jesus as the Son of God, he's living but dying at the same time because he doesn't die in his godhood, he dies in his humanity. Um, so the Trinity remains the Trinity even through the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Uh, but Jesus lost everything. His disciples abandoned him. So he's, he, um, Job is a model of Jesus, which you talked about last week as a model. There's a lot of biblical characters that personify some aspects of Jesus' own story. And the story is fulfilled in Jesus, of course. Um, although at times the simpler person, the less gifted, or the less favored by time and circumstances, probably wished, if not in envy, than in troubled despondency that he had the capacity and the opportunity to be able to grasp what the wise and learned in various periods have fathomed and to become absorbed in it and felt in his soul that his desire of also being able himself to teach others and not only to be receiving instruction job does not tempt him in that way what would good human what good would human wisdom be here and there, human wisdom does come up to a point where it comes up empty. 
And you think about the uh, first uh, section of St. Augustine that I, um, that I, that I read, that the, uh, the material world, the created world, doesn't ultimately have the answer. And it, you think, reduce this idea to its most simplest um, understanding, that something that is not, is not alive, something that is dead, cannot become alive on its own because it's dead. Um, that's, that's a fundamental um, logical statement. So the idea that the created order could have created itself is a contradiction. It can't. Something that is dead remains dead. Uh, that, that is just unless something supernatural acts upon it. So it doesn't necessarily prove the existence of God, but does it, it does, it does uh, infer there's a power or being outside of the created order that, um, that existed before the created matter did. And that can be God or it can be something else. But uh, as you get into kind of the progression, you start to think, well, let's call it God because that seems to be a pretty good name for that. That supernatural power, and does God does God have a personality or is it impersonal? That's another question. Is it more like deism or something like that? And if God has a personality, does he have morality? Is he is is it more like a theistic direction? Like does he have moral qualities, like not just powerful and creating the universe, but um, does he also care and love and and weep or have sadness? And then if that, then what? what does that mean and how does that <clears throat> process and then you think about well which um, religion in the world best manifests this characteristic of this personality of god and uh christianity is either the legitimate thing or it's a complete fabrication of the highest order which um whoever created christianity if it was uh, created in a conspiracy they knew what they were doing because this idea of paradox is so deep in the Christian faith that God and man, Jesus is both God and man, and he suffered as man, but he's still God. He's, he's sinless, but he takes the sin of the world. This gets into the very, very structure of reality, and Christianity captures that way beyond things like Buddhism or Islam. or like th Those religions have value and point to things that are true, but they don't have the manifestation of that paradox, which is so important because it's the way life is. Um, and it ultimately would be a false witness to be a Christian, early Christians who created this thing, if that's what the argument is, that they, um, they created this religion out of thin air, that Jesus died and was not raised from the dead. You have a lot of explaining to do of why they did it and how they did it. Uh, scriptures portray all the disciples as being scaredy cats, so something gave them power to withstand the persecutions that would come from preaching the gospel. And um, the first three centuries, Christi Christians did not use violence. They did not employ violence, even in self-defense. And they would rather have gone to the lions or been crucified themselves or had their heads chopped off than fight back. I don't necessarily think that was wrong when Constantine uh, allowed the church to have a defensive a posture against violence and persecution, uh, but it's, it can go wrong so easily because revenge is so so bloody, uh, so the civil government must do that. 
Yeah, I don't want to get too much into them. Oh, but anyway, what good would human wisdom be here? Would it perhaps try to make it more understandable what the simplest person and the child readily understood and understood just as well as the very wise? So you can understand this saying that Job says, but it's hard to really understand. You can understand it intellectually, but you don't really understand it experientially until you go through it. What good would eloquence and the power of words be here? Would they be able to produce in the speaker or any other person what the simplest person is able to do just as well as the very wise. Action! Exclamation point. Would not human wisdom rather make everything more difficult? Uh, so this saying of Job is, is simple in one way, but difficult in another. Uh, would not eloquence, which despite all of its gloriousness, gloriousnessness, <laughs> never once manages to articulate simultaneously the variety that simultaneously dwells in a person's heart. Rather, anesthetize the energy of the act and let it fall asleep in the protracted and protracted deliberation. So Job is referring to, or uh, Soren is referring to Job worshiping. And was saying that the Lord took and the Lord, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says that Job worships. So that's the action that uh, Job assumed the position the posture of being being worshipful of God. Rather anesthetize the energy of the act and let it fall asleep in protracted deliberation. But even if all this is true, and as a result a single individual, individual tries to avoid saying anything that would disturbingly intervene between the struggling one and the beautiful prototype who is equally close to every human being, lest by increasing his wisdom he also increases his grief. And that's from, uh, that's from Ecclesiastes, I think. But Solomon writes, the more that you know, the more that you suffer. The more that you read, the more that you talk, the more that you listen, the more that you watch about the way the world really is, the more sorrow you'll have, the more grief you'll have. That's just part of the equation. Take care not to become trapped himself in the fine words of human persuasion which are exceedingly sterile it by no means follows that deliberation and elaboration would not have their importance if the person deliberating were previously unacquainted with this unacquainted with the saying then it would indeed always be beneficial for him to learn to know it if he did not know the saying but had had not had the occasion to test it in his life, then it would indeed be beneficial for him to learn to understand what he would perhaps apply at some time. I don't know if you've ever been at a point where somebody's told you something that didn't make a lot of sense or did, but not quite in the depth that you would later understand it, but the words kind of stuck with you. And uh, Soren's kind of advocating that here, that you might not truly understand the verse. But once you go through the trial, it'll come back to you in a deeper way. Um, I remember a story. I didn't start driving a car until I was 20 years old. My parents were out doing their own thing, and I was just kind of a lost kid in a lot of ways doing my own thing, which wasn't always good. But one one consequence of that was is my, my mom and my dad. My dad was overseas for most of the time. During my teenage years, my mom was around, but not around. She was out doing her stuff, living her life. But I didn't get a license when I was 16, which during my generation was really your passport to freedom. Now we have these phones that can take us anywhere and these computers. But back in the day, if you didn't have a car, you were going to be walking a lot or hitchhiking or um, you know, riding your bike or whatever, which was limited. 
But uh, I didn't get my license until I was 20 years old and didn't get a car until I was almost 21. Uh, but I had a hard time passing my driver's test. Uh, flunked it twice. When I was getting my permit, I actually got the same, the same test twice, which isn't supposed to happen, which was extremely helpful. So I could get my permit because somehow the system inside the driver's license center gave me the same exact test twice on the television or the monitor or whatever, some form of computers back in the day. It wasn't very sophisticated, but you're not supposed to get the same test twice, but I did, and that really helped me pass my permit. But now that I had my permit, I had to pass the actual test, and uh, I flunked it twice. <laughs> and I was hanging out with a mentor of mine, uh, Walter Williams, who was an economist. He happened to live in my uh, on my street, but he taught down at George Mason, has a PhD from UCLA. Look him up online. He's an interesting character. Black man. Uh, raised by a single parent back in the 40s, um, went off to Korea, almost got court-martialed because he was a smart aleck, uh, did some things that offended the military, but also was like making the point that the Constitution didn't apply to him as a black man because it wasn't being applied to him as a black man because he had no rights, so he was uh, kind of truculent about that. But Walter Williams, uh, economist at George Mason, but he was my mentor when my dad was away, uh, passed away a couple years ago, sadly. Uh, but when I flunked my driving test, I was sitting in his kitchen after we had played some tennis, and he said, Rick, that's my nickname, he said, uh, as difficult as this is right now, it's going to look like nothing in 10 or 15 years. Uh, and it was right, because I had gone through other things uh, 10, 15 years later that were even more difficult. But at the time, it was a, it was a, it was a huge, uh, huge stressor, and he kind of put me at ease, like, like, this too shall pass. You'll do okay. You'll have other things to worry about. Uh, and as life goes on and how right he was. Uh, so sometimes those things come back to us. What he would perhaps apply at some time if he had tested the saying but betrayed it, even though he thought that it was a saying that had betrayed him, then it would indeed be beneficial for him if he deliberated on it once again before he again took to his heels, like that little phraseology, again took to his heels, took to my heels and ran away from the saying in the excitement of the struggle and the flurry of the battle. Perhaps the deliberations would at some time have its importance for him. Perhaps it would happen that the deliberation would become vivid and present in his soul just what, when he needed it, needed it in order to penetrate the confused thoughts of his disquieted heart, perhaps it would happen that what deliberation understood in pieces would suddenly come together reborn in the moment of decision, that what deliberation sowed in corruption would rise up on the day of distress in the incorruptible life of action. So um, Soren's kind of creating a parallel here. That verse is actually about eternal life that... Um, Paul writes about that we are sown in corruption, but we'll be raised in incorruption. And using the example of like how a seed has to die before it creates life and is raised uh, in a plant. And yesterday was Tim Keller's funeral up at St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral up in New York City. And I thought that was an interesting choice because Protestants and Catholics do have fundamental differences about the faith in some very significant ways. Uh, but I think it was kind of neat that they had the service at St. Patrick's up in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller officially never really had a church up there. They, I think they rented different buildings, part of Hunter College with Columbia University. I know that because I was there one time. But they, don't, they had offices, but they didn't have a, a church for a large gathering like that. Uh, 
which will require uh, thousands of seats. Um, but that verse was mentioned by the preacher yesterday or one of the speakers that's sown in corruption but raised in incorruption. But um, Soren's making that example and then drawing a parallel between understanding something and then acting on it. It's like um, corruption versus incorruption. Once you act on something, it's not corrupted anymore. It's incorrupt. We shall then endeavor to understand Job more clearly in his beautiful words. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me just finish up with this. I know I took a lot of time to kind of set this up today, but I wanted to do it. And I'm going to finish this one section and call it, call it a day in terms of reading. In a country to the east lived a man whose name was Job. Now we read this before. He possessed the blessings of the land, abundant herds and rich pastures. His words upheld the stumbling and braced the trembling knees. So Job was not a rich, arrogant person. He was humble. His tent was as blessed to dwell as the bosom of heaven, and in this tent he lived with seven sons and three daughters, and with him in this tent lived friendship of the Lord, lived the friendship of the Lord. Uh, Job was an old man. His joy in life was his children's joy, over which he watched lest it become their ruin. One day, while his children were celebrating together at the house of the firstborn son, Job sat alone by his hearth when he had offered a burnt sacrifice for each of them. His heart was disposed to rejoice in the thought of the children's joy. As he sat there in the quiet security of joy, there came a messenger, and before he had finished speaking, there came another. And while this one was still speaking, there came a third messenger. But the fourth emissary came from his sons and daughters with word that the house had collapsed and had buried them all. And I heard a podcast recently about when uh, Pompeii, in another city that was close by, but Pompeii was buried under uh, pumice, uh, the, like the the discharge from the uh, volcano that blew up. You know, people were just vaporized, and uh, it was kind of like a mold that their body created within the fissures of the rock and of the volcanic, volcanic eruption spaces. And like there was a dog that they could find out that had been incinerated alive because the outline... Um, Created in the, in the in all the molten lava, um, uh, the the uh, figure of a dog. Uh, but it was horrifying. People were just going about their lives, but many of them were trying to get away. By the time they realized the um, Mount Vesuvius was ready to blow, it was too late. It was rumbling for quite some time, and people were nervous about it. But when it finally got to explode, and I think it exploded more than once, uh, people were caught in the midst of trying to get away from it and uh, just killed thousands of people. Then Job arose. So this idea that uh, like people could just be incinerated or killed in a mass accident is just a reality. This is not something that's unusual. Think about the towers of 9-11 and all that and other natural disasters like tsunamis and all that. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and cast himself upon the ground and worshipped. Uh, so that was the unusual reaction that he had it's unusual because most of us wouldn't have worshiped god in that his sorrow did not make use of many words or rather he did not say a single one his appearance he did say a single one but um but it was brief um i don't know when he said blessed be the name of the lord i think he fell down and th he did all these actions first before he said uh lord gave and the lord took away blessed be the name of the lord so that's what Soren's referring to he didn't talk immediately his appearance alone gave witness that his heart was shattered. Could you want any want it any other way? Or does not the person who takes pride in not being able to sorrow on the day of sorrow have the shame of not being able to rejoice 
on the day of joy either. And we've spoken about this before, that that's just the coinage of emotions, that if you accept the good, you have to accept the bad. And if you want joy and happiness, you have to be willing to create a space or a place for the, for the sadness to get into. Or is the sight of such immutability not unpleasant and stultifying, indeed shocking, even though it's, it is heart-wrenching heart to see the venerable old man who with his fatherly countenance was just now resting in the joy of the Lord, now cast upon the ground with his robe torn and his head shaved, having surrendered to sorrow, not in despair, but with human emotions. He was quick to judge between God and himself, and these are the words of judgment. So this is where Job does speak. So that was what was what Soren was referring to, that he didn't say this immediately. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return with these words. The dispute was settled, and then it, he gets into also the blessed be the name of the Lord, and Lord gave, and Lord took away, and uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, and his soul, every demand was silenced that would claim from the Lord something he was unwilling to give or would desire to keep something as if it, not, it had not been given. Then comes the confession from the man who, whom not sorrow alone, but also worship had cast to the ground. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. With an exclamation point. The Lord gave, and the Lord took. The Lord gave. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. The first thing here that halts deliberation is that Job said, "The Lord gave." Are these words uh, not irrelevant to the occasion? Do they not contain something extraneous to the event itself? If at, if, if at one moment a man had lost everything he treasured and has lost the greatest treasure of all, perhaps the loss will overwhelm him in such a way that he doesn't even dare to say it, even though in his innermost being he is conscious before God that he has lost everything. Or will he not let the crushing weight of the loss rest on his soul, but he will, as it were, detach himself from it and with deep emotions say, the Lord took away to submit to the Lord in silence and humility, and this way is indeed also deserving of praise and emulation. And such a person would also uh, save his soul in the struggle, even if he lost all jo joy. But Job, the moment the Lord took everything away, he did not first say the Lord took away, but first of all, he said the Lord gave. The statement is brief, but its brevity uh, but in its brevity, it effectually points out what is supposed to point out, that Job's soul was not so not squeezed into the silent subjection to the sorrow, but that his heart had first expanded in thankfulness, that the first thing the loss of everything did was to make him thankful to the Lord that he had given it to him all the blessings that he now took away from him. So that's pretty good... Uh, pretty good um, observation it's a observation of gold that ultimately we're going to lose everything anyway it was interesting yesterday during tim uh, keller's funeral his family came up and spoke and that was um that was sweet it was interesting i could kind of tell who the older brother was i don't know the family real well but i could tell by the reaction of the of the of the sons of tim keller who the younger brother was uh, versus the older brother i could kind of see it psychologically i don't know if i was correct but i believe i was one was more emotional. I think that was the younger brother. And the older brother seemed to be kind of the tear, caretaker, the more one that was trying to keep it together for the family. And then uh, Tim's wife came up and spoke too. And she was wonderful. She was wonderful, had a wonderful spirit about her. 
Um, she's really, really tiny. Tim was a tall man, but uh, his wife was kind of small, and she called herself a hobbit, that she's officially become a hobbit. But, um, you know, you see all the great work that Tim Keller did over his lifetime, and he would have been the first one to say that, you know, whatever the Lord gave me in terms of talents and abilities and ministry, all credit goes to God. He actually, Tim Keller actually composed the service before he died. He uh, pointed what the hymns would be and what the reflection would be on the hymns. He wrote down what he wanted them to say about it. And he didn't actually do the sermon. And if somebody didn't read the sermon that he gave, he didn't have a sermon there. But he had observations after each one of the hymns. Uh, but Tim Keller would have been the first person to say that the Lord gave and the Lord took away, but was very thankful for what the Lord had given. But ultimately, we're going to lose everything in this world anyway. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to hold on to our, our physical lives here. We're not going to be able to hold on to our possessions or our families or our friends. We're going to lose everything anyway. We may not lose it as quickly as Job did, but we're all in a position of being like Job, just a, a slower version of it, that we're going to get sick. Nobody dies in health usually. It's usually an accident or something degenerative or something like that. So Job is uh, Job is humanity. Job is just a story of human existence on this planet. And it'll drive you crazy. And I'll get into this next week a little bit. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much right now because we're running a bit long. But I want to get more into this, the sadness of life and how we have to just um, realize the Lord gave this life. We should be thankful for it, but ultimately it's going to be taken away. And we have to come to terms with that and to make our peace with it and rejoice in it. So that's it for today. Hope everybody's doing okay. I'll talk to you next week, Lord willing.